Don't you judge me. You're the selfish one. You're the one who charged his own devoted fans for proxies. I mean, it's not even real cards. Well, what could it cost? One thousand dollars. You've never actually set foot in a local game store, have you? I don't have time for this. Hello and welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I am... Nope, I don't say that now. I'm Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, voice of Practicality Maddox. Uh, so I, am I some sort of, uh, what are, what are you, I don't even remember the voice of cycle. What are these cards? What are you doing to me? Oh, Why I am I? What am I doing here? I was just saying you're very <laughs> practical. I feel like when we're talking about ideas for episodes, you're always mm-hmm. like, how can we help people? What can we make that's useful? I saw a tweet a while ago from Ryan Sachs who said that the best advice he ever got from somebody about his articles specifically was to have like a specific outcome. Like, because I read this article, I'm going to make this change to my deck. Or I'm going to play this situation differently. And having that sort of focus on practicality was really important. And I feel like you bring that to the show. Meanwhile, I just want to like talk about theory and nonsense that has no actual outcome all the time. I mean, yeah, I love helping people uh, get into Cube specifically because I think it's a great format. And uh, oh, you, there's you, a lot you like Cube, can, and I like Cube, so I will I will accept this uh, this nom de plume nom de plume sure sure well you may be the voice of practicality anthony but uh this week i have one out i won the coin flip and we are instead recording an episode about deep meaty theory that won't help anybody at all will just confuse people and cause people to leave comments on the internet telling me i'm wrong hey that's that's a thing you can do that's an outcome if at the end of this episode you want to leave a comment about andy on the internet great you did it you did the podcast just right Our conversation this week is going to be inspired by an episode of the Eternal Glory podcast. This is another magic podcast I have recently added to my queue. It is hosted by Phil from Thraben U, Brian from the Epic Storm, and Brian Koval from Bosch and Roll. These are all different content creators, specifically in the like Eternal format space. I also want to give a quick shout out to the Bosch and Roll YouTube channel specifically because we gave a rundown of a lot of the other magic content we like a while ago, and I listed a bunch of YouTube channels, and I included Phil's, the other hosts of a show, but I, I wasn't on the Bosch and Roll train at the time, and I gotta say, Brian has become my favorite content of that type, right, where he's like, does a deck tech plays a league with that deck and you kind of get to learn about card interactions and the meta of a given format. I think he's makes the best kind of videos in that category. He explains the deck so succinctly, it's so cleanly edited. So big shout out to the Boshnerl YouTube channel. But this week instead we're talking about their podcast. They did an episode a few weeks back about the bands in Popper. For those of you that don't follow the Popper world, a majority of the cards with the initiative mechanic at Common, were banned in Popper. You and I don't play Popper. I don't follow the meta. Apparently, these cards were too good, and especially it was too good to, just on turn two, ritual out one of these black initiative cards and then run away with the game. And it was becoming defined to the format. Gavin Verhey did a really good Good Morning Magic on the nature of these bands and the thinking behind them. So that's another good thing for everyone to check out. Anyway, this episode I thought was really interesting where they were talking about these bands. And honestly, Anthony, I think constructed players or you know more competitive players talking about bands is one of the only times we as cube designers get some insight into how they might think about 
the game from a design perspective, right? Yeah, there's definitely a little bit of overlap there in terms of thinking about bands and thinking about cube design because it is similarly sort of making choices about what are the cards that make up the format. It's not about card evaluation strictly, although that is a big component. It's also just about what every individual card that's present in a format does to affect the, the kind of gameplay that happens. Exactly. Like, are these the kind of games we want to encourage, even if this win rate is only... 51% uh, is it 51% but that entire 51% is just miserable awful games that nobody wants to play how do you define miserable awful games nobody wants to play when that's purely subjective and everyone has different kinds of magic they like so I actually love listening to constructed players talk about bands because we get to hear more than just this is the dominant strategy right now but get some insight into these are the kinds of things I want this format to be about I like this format because it allows me to do these kinds of things in magic which I think is special to popper legacy whatever format they're talking about so anyway, this episode is going to be some commentary and uh, conversation around episode 81 of the Eternal Glory podcast, where I want to connect some of the ideas they had in that episode to cube design, which is, of course, what we're most interested in. But Anthony, before we do that, we got to do a pack one, pick one from a listener submitted cube. I see here in the Discord that you have chosen an Innistrad cube, but this episode's actually coming out a couple weeks before Halloween. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry. As, as we talked about last week, uh, we have... Added a little algorithm to semi-randomly pick a cube, and it almost got the Halloween episode just this right. This was just the almost one the algorithm pulled? Uh, yeah, I've written a really powerful algorithm that that almost gets it. I want to say what are the chances of that, but then I feel like you're going to go look at all the Innistrad cubes and run the numbers and tell me what the chances are, and that's no fun. Oh, I can actually tell you very easily. The chances of this cube being picked were, maybe we shouldn't give that percentage, but <laughs> no. my algorithm also spits out a little bit of cube. statistic. Not this exact cube. I meant the chances of any one of the... Innistrad cubes are very popular set cubes. I That's feel like. true. I think it's probably the plane that has, at least on the cube map, it's the plane that has the biggest sort of island of... Very of defined. Lots of defined horror-themed cubes. Ravnica is close behind, but then the third most popular plane, I think it's a big steep drop-off between Innistrad and Ravnica, and then what's the next most popular cube? Possibly Theros? Maybe? Anyway, uh, thank you algorithm robot uh thank you rn jesus for giving us this horror of innistrad cube by listener lucas I, I think most set cubes can fall into like two different categories one set cube is more or less trying to replicate the experience of playing actual limited in a given block and another kind of set cube is like inspired by the block but then actually plays cards from maybe outside of those specific sets expansions if they have the correct theme they take place on that plane you know we get commander products where we get cards from all different planes all the time so there are a lot of innistrad flavor cards in modern horizons or whatever that are in this list and yeah, that's this, this is maybe more of a plane cube where it includes cards from all of the different sets every time we've revisited innistrad as well as like you're saying one-off cards from different core sets and modern horizon sets and commander sets where there are things that are clearly happening and, and are part of the Innistrad flavor, uh, but didn't happen in one of those main visit sets. Yeah, and if I was ever to do a set cube, that is definitely what I'd want to do. I'd want to be able to sink my teeth into the deep catalog of an individual plane. Do want to give a quick shout out to the Magic Multiverse Project. This is a really great resource we've mentioned on the show, but it's been a long time. If you're designing a plane-specific cube, this is a resource that attempts to categorize and sort all of the cards that exist on a plane but aren't in sets that are relative to that plane. So you can find the cards from Modern Horizons or Commander sets or whatever that do actually take place on Innistrad by checking out that resource. All right, Anthony, three packs, 15 cards. We got a classic draft in front of us. Uh, I'm going to read the first pack, and then you're going to tell us what you're looking at. We got Dungeon Geists, Donal, Herald of Wings, Donal, Donal, who knows, Can't Stay Away, Cobbled Wings, Bonfire of the Damned, Maniform Hellkite, Stencia Bloodhall, Soul Snare, 
Winding Way, Flip the Switch, Traveler's Amulet, Catilda Dawnheart Martyr, Ransack the Lab, Hanweir Garrison, and Old Stick Fingers. This pack is actually a little bit surprising to me, just because I think when I think of a lot of these sort of plain or theme-flavored cubes, they're often a little bit lower power level, which, you know, makes sense. You just have a lot more flexibility at lower power level to work within a particular theme. And this cube has just a lot of super powerful, like all the kind of like cool mythic vampires and, and werewolves and things like that. So yeah, it was just cool to see like, oh, we are in this theme cube, but also there's a bunch of like powerful cards that I, I haven't really had an opportunity to play before, uh, which is especially especially cool, I think, because some of these cards seem like they're just a little bit underpowered for a lot of the very, you know, the typical kind of cubes that are trying to play the most powerful cube. Uh, so I really like that this is a, a space where the constraint is really allowing cards to shine that maybe you haven't had a chance to play with before. To that point, Lucas the Designer says that the cube prioritizes flavor and fun to spooks over strict gameplay optimization. And I, I love hearing that. And honestly, I think it's going to be part of the topic we're going to talk about today is prioritizing things maybe other than pure fair magic gameplay and perfect power optimization when you're designing an environment. So, you know, nice little monologue you gave there, but what are you actually taking out of <laughs> I'm just buying myself time. So a couple things are standing out here. Uh, we have a couple just sort of card draw spells. Those are appealing, but I don't think they're quite going to edge out just some of the really powerful creatures we have. Catilda is a little bit interesting just because it is like a big signpost for the spirits matter, but that's maybe something I'm, I'm less eager to, to jump into the very first time I'm drafting a cube. The two that are really standing out to me are Maniform Hellkite and Donal, or Donal, uh, the Herald of Wings. These are both just cards that seem like they do a ton. I've never played with either of these, but they either give you a bunch of extra creature ETB effects and a bunch of flying creatures, or just pack on a ton of extra damage whenever you cast non-creature spells. I, I think it's going to be hard to not pick one of those two options, but Interesting. I'm a little torn between them. Now, I usually bring a very spiky attitude to the pack one, pick one, and try and take the best card from my deck. And honestly, if I'm doing that, I think I'm taking Handwear Garrison. I think Handwear Garrison is a stronger card than most of the cards in this pack. Maybe you could argue Dungeon Geist is up there, but that'll depend a lot on the density of removal. If there's a decent amount of removal running around, then you're going to want that additional value you get from Handwear Garrison whenever you get to attack. I think that's what I'm taking for power level, but I got to say, Anthony, this pack has a card that I'm so enraptured by that I'm taking it even though I don't think it's the correct pick, and that is Maniform Hellcut. I think that card is so cool. I really want to play with it, and the mood I'm in right now is I want to play with a dragon that makes other dragons. I'm just not sure that Henry Garrison is going to play optimally here. Like, I think that in your cube, for example, just the, the one mana makes a huge difference. You have lots of removal in your environment where you're going to be able to push through and make a bunch of tokens with it. I'm not sure if in this context you're going to be able to do that because there are a bunch of these, like, 4-4 flyers floating around that I think those are going to be the cards that really make or break games. So I, I think that it's probably the right choice from a, a power level perspective as well. Well, good. Then uh, what I want is correct. Excellent. The best place to be. Two other things that I wonder what your opinion is in this pack is the environment does look a little bit light on fixing, just, you know, compared to a lot of the cubes that we typically play. Would you consider drafting Traveler's Amulet here just as like a, the most open, flexible pick uh, that's going to fix your colors no matter what you end up drafting? Absolutely not. No. Okay, great. Um, I mean, so I should say, if I play this environment a whole bunch, and, you know, I know that Delirium was a theme in Shadows Over Innistrad and Eldritch Moon, if I play this a bunch and learned that Delirium was a really important archetype in this cube and it was really successful, then maybe I could see taking something like a Traveler's Amulet. But I, there's enough good cards here that uh, I don't want to take uh, relatively slow, even if it's rare fixing over a, a big bomb. Fair enough. What about Bonfire of the Damned. Again, I feel like in a slower environment, this could just be kind of a bomb. 
I would say it's more of a bond, but okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, honestly, it might be the right pick. I I can't put my design goggles away enough to not be upset about the miracle mechanic. This is a card that if you have it in your opening hand, it's pretty weak. You're just spending a bunch of mana to do something relevant. I mean, at five mana, maybe depending on the board state, if you're up against a really low to the ground opponent with a bunch of small creatures, it can do something. But really, it's pretty below rate, I think, if you are hard casting it. But the miracle cost is pretty insane. I think anyone can agree that if you get to Miracle Bonfire of the Damned, if you draw it off the top on a turn when you would want to cast a Bonfire of the Damned, it's insane. So maybe a little swingy, but definitely the highest ceiling of any card we're looking at in this pack. Yeah, that's tempting. I think I'm also on the Maniform Hellkite, but either Bonfire or I'm really curious to play with that Herald of Wings just because it seems like a really cool build around, you know, by, build around by having creatures in your deck but especially being able to optimize it with a lot of enter the battlefield creatures the ceiling there is very cool it does look very very cool and maybe maybe you have a chance of building that dungeon geists and then that would be pretty sick Ooh, yeah probably not but maybe who knows you, you never know i i've been wrong so often about what i think is going to wheel so i clearly have different perspectives than a lot of players sitting at draft tables well, we got a little sneak preview in Strog Cube, courtesy of the algorithm. Thank you, Lucas, for sending in your cube. If you'd like us to crack a pack from your cube, you can fill out a form on our website to send it in. You did listen to this entire episode because I asked you to? I sure did. Wow, the power I have to force you to listen to a podcast episode if I want to. I take your recommendations pretty seriously, I think. Ditto, my friend. Wow. It's a shared feeling. Wow. What did you think of it overall? I thought it was really interesting. I mean, like we've already discussed a little bit, just having that sort of discussion about bands actually does bring up a lot of things. I'm not the person that's most enthusiastic just about conversations about power level of cards. It's just not where I get the most joy from the game. Uh, So hearing other people from a very different context and very different motivations, still touching on these really interesting subjects of like, what do we actually want from this game? What do we, what do we enjoy about it? What is it fun? And I thought it was especially interesting the way they talked about Popper compared to other formats and how a big part that was meaningful to them was that the format is distinct in some way. Uh, So I really appreciated all those aspects of that conversation. That's definitely a perspective that I don't have. I mean, I don't play any constructed format with any amount of regularity. So the idea that I would be a constructed player and have my suite of constructed formats that I liked to play when I wanted to get a little bit of different kinds of magic, right? As opposed to having a couple different cubes, which is what I have, where it's like, well, when I want to do... Which feels very similar, though, right? In terms of just... It, it absolutely you does. You do want to make them deliberately distinct in a lot of ways, because if you just, like, mush them all together, then what's the point of having multiple different options? Yeah, when I listen to Bryant from the Epic Storm talking, it's like, I want this guy to draft a degenerate microcube. He would love it. It's nothing but a degenerate dirty combo environment. Probably wouldn't get much out of my magic cube, though. So that part was really interesting to me, too. I agree, where it's like we have kind of carved out this space in magic for the things we like, often with different kinds of cubes, different battle boxes, other novel ways to play. And for people that are really invested, especially, I think, online, if you're playing on Arena or Magic Online, I think it's much easier to bounce between formats, obviously, because you have cues accessible to you 24-7, but also you can just very easily build new decks and move your collection between decks uh, without having to actually move paper around. So... That is an interesting way to engage with the game that I have never fully wrapped my head around until we were talking about it in this episode, like you said. So on to these bands. Like I said, I don't play Pauper. I'm not going to weigh in on the relevance of these bands, but it was really interesting to me to hear them talk about whether or not this ban was reasonable. And there were definitely arguments on both sides that made a lot of sense to me. Like One argument against the ban was that, by all accounts, it doesn't seem like, by the numbers, the initiative cards were actually 
overly dominant. And more importantly, it doesn't seem like they were actually available on Magic Online for very long to rack up when anybody might consider to be like statistically relevant amounts of drafts to figure out if they actually are overly dominant. Right. I think this was a key piece of the conversation was that, was this the fastest ban that Popper has ever seen? I believe that's what they said on the episode. It was the fastest like, ban from going legal on Magic Online to the thing actually being banned. Even faster than Chatterstorm. Which was, you know, two and a half weeks is not a lot of time, but... I don't necessarily feel like I have a great sense of perspective in terms of like a lot of magic can still get played in two and a half weeks just because of the nature of magic online and how accessible it is in certain ways. But it's not a lot of real time on the calendar and it's certainly not a lot of time compared to the way a lot of bans happen. And how this applies to Cube, right, is I couldn't help but think when they were talking about how short it's been since it got banned. Like you said, a lot of magic still got played of this format in that two and a half weeks. You have people all over the globe that are playing magic online that are loading into popper queues, probably more full eight-person drafts got played in those two and a half weeks than will ever be played of any of our cubes in paper, probably? I don't think that's even a question. Like, it's it's orders of magnitude different, right? I don't know. I mean, I know popper is not the most popular format on Magic Online, but yeah, I think it's probably hundreds, thousands of drafts, which is going to take us a long time to rack up, given that we only play in paper with our actual cubes in actual meat space with human beings, which makes you think about people that have talked about, oh, a card overperforming in their cube, especially when people give any kind of statistics, like, oh, I keep track of stats, and over the last 10 drafts, this card has performed better than any other card. You know, they, they felt that there was nowhere near enough time for there to be any statistically relevant or uh, any actionably relevant statistics to be driving this decision because there was so little time to draft it, and that's more than we ever get to play any of our cubes. So I, it's another sort of emphasis on the fact that it's so difficult to derive any power level assessments from cards from anecdotal games of magic that are played of a cube and all your experience if you're playing your cube with your playgroup is always anecdotal compared to anything statistically relevant right but i think in both contexts and this is another thing that i really appreciate about the, the conversation uh in this episode was there is this sort of data component to making bands to managing a format but that data component can't be the whole picture because for one thing, it's just not going to be complete or accurate because you're always dealing with a limited sample size and a biased data set of players that are informing each other. And there's a lot of other factors that dictate what cards are actually performing. But even beyond that, it's just not necessarily meaningful because it's not the whole story. It isn't just about cutting the card that is performing the best. It's about what do you actually want from this format? And that I think just applies even more strongly to cube when our data set is basically nothing, you know, 10 yeah, drafts it's, is like it's no effectively data nothing. Yeah. Uh, so then to see that two and a half weeks of draft was still potentially not enough to say that this data is the, the one thing that we can use to back up a decision. We have to supplement that with some sort of qualitative analysis of it, as well as really, you know, personal taste in our understanding of what we want this game to be. So it, in, in one sense, right, it was a very short amount of time on the calendar, two and a half weeks. And I can kind of see the argument that even if, let's say, there were a million drafts in that two and a half weeks, if that's all just people loading up the queues, and it's all of those people's first or second drafts with the initiative cards, right? right. They're, they're playing this deck for the first time. They want to see how it shakes out. It may be that you do actually need calendar time for right, people yeah. to write articles about counterplay or for like a meta to develop in the community where people are actually talking about how to beat a deck that has become dominant. And that might take a long time regardless of how many games come up. This is something I think about in Cube all the time. I mean, this is especially evident, I think, in a Cube like the regular Cube where there are more cards that are that people are unfamiliar with. They don't know how they play. And so I think a lot of times you have powerful cards in that cube that just go undrafted. People don't play them because the meta of the group is that they don't think that card is good. And so it's just a self-repeating cycle. And it's entirely possible that a card needs to be shown to be dominant or a deck needs to be shown to be dominant like five drafts in a row before anybody drafting that cube is going to start thinking, what do I have to do to beat that deck? 
Right. Absolutely. I, I mean, I even said when we're looking at the pack one pick one at the beginning of this episode, uh, that card could be, you know, it's a cool card. It has a high ceiling, but I'm not really going to draft that until it gets proven to me. Right. And I think a lot of people have that if attitude. all eight which, people sit down and say, I'm not going to draft the Spirits right. deck until it's proven to me. Guess what's never going to get proven to them? The Spirits deck, because nobody's going to go for it. Which, you know, I, I should probably be less comfortable with that bias and just be more willing to try stuff out. Part of it is just that, you know, we're not drafting every three days, every two days, we're drafting usually once or twice a week. So you definitely want to feel like you're having a meaningful draft. So it is it is a little bit of a risk to just dive into these more niche and unproven territories. And then the other thing is, like you said, because the quantitative analysis is not going to be the whole picture here, right? I mean, they made a the really good point that if you were looking purely at like play rates and win rates, like you would just ban Brainstorm and fetch lands immediately in Legacy. They're in every Blue deck, no matter what, is going to be playing Brainstorm pretty much, and it's really powerful. But they've clearly made a qualitative judgment that that is what they want this environment to be about. That's the kind of magic they want Legacy to be. There are different opinions on ban lists floating around. There is like a, there are like good magic purists who believe that whatever creates the the best most interactive gameplay should be the the goal of a format like people who want to see fetch lands and brainstorm ban and legacy games might be better on a lot of metrics if that happened but it's not legacy anymore and that's exactly what we do as cube designers right we've talked about how it's really important to be conscious of what the power outliers in your environment are what the powerful strategies the powerful decks the powerful individual cards what those are because they dictate so much of the play experience and i think oftentimes i hear cube designers hyper focused on this idea of balance that everything should be perfectly in balance and every color and color combination and card in the whole cube should have a perfect you know 50% win rate if in an ideal world and forget that that's not even close to achievable but even if it was achievable i don't think it's a good ideal to necessarily shoot for because you need some sort of thing to grab onto, right? You need some direction in a draft. The difference in power level in retail limited between rares and commons is an important detail of that draft. It gives you a direction. It says, I'm going to draft this color because I opened this bomb rare in my pack. And so that's how I'm going to decide to draft this color. Maybe I don't usually play. Maybe I consider myself a blue-white player, but I open this red card. It's really powerful. That's a reason to put me out of my comfort zone and play something new and learn something theoretically from that draft. So I think that texture of having different power level is really important. It also just makes opening packs during a draft or otherwise more exciting. If everything's just going to be, you know, the same power level, the same sort of level of excitement, you're not really going to get much out of that experience. Yeah, and I've actually wondered if my own cube has gotten a little too safe. I I feel like there's a couple decks you can sit down and, like, just force if you wanted to in my cube. And it's because they're well-supported. It's because they're decks that I enjoy. I like the play patterns they lead to. I'm happy for those decks to be good. But... I don't want some player taking what I would consider like a role player in one of these really good decks over a standout card in a maybe tier two deck because they know, well, this other deck is better. So I'm just going to take this opt over this Asika's Chariot or this Table of the Mirror Breaker or whatever, because I know that the opt deck is a deck that uh, that is good. That, that That's what I want to be playing. I want there to be a reason for people to get out of the normal patterns they, they fall into in a draft. Yeah, I definitely feel that with with my cube a little bit. When I was going through sorting it the other day, I'm just thinking, man, I really kind of miss drafting Kess in this in this cube, which is a card we've talked about a couple times, and how it really put her back in, <laughs> put her back in, it really put her back in, pushed the format in a way that wasn't fun because it was repetitive oh, well, and you know. whatever. But uh, 
it was a card that was very fun to draft when you did get to open and it led to these exciting moments. And and yeah, I mean, the, my main cube has gotten a little bit to the point where a lot of those exciting edges have been rounded off and the experience is in some way more balanced and smoother. In other ways, there's not those high highs and those like really exciting pack opens. So to the point where I've even been experimenting a little bit with other cubes that try and reintroduce that in a way that mitigate that, those issues in other ways. Yeah, let's get into this because one of the most interesting things I heard on this podcast episode was Brian referred to this idea of a magic purist, talking about people's attitudes towards the ban list. And he was like, this person that just wants good, clean magic, right? Like interesting decisions, you know, balanced metas, like everything just comes down to your wit and your skill or whatever. And this is definitely, I think, a very dominant theme amongst cube designers. A lot of cube designers describe their environment as an environment. They want to be rewarding skill and they want to sort of foster these things. And hearing it in the context of these bands and in the context of other things you might value about magic, it made me wonder, is that a good thing overall? Like, what are the other kinds of metrics of the game that we are missing by just focusing on trying to do the very difficult task of designing a novel balanced environment with lack of enough draft data to really determine power outliers and, you know, all the sort of challenges we've talked about. What are we missing, though, if we're just focused on trying to make these environments, you know, play smoothly and uh, and smooth all those edges off like you, like you mentioned? I mean, I think that that is a reasonable goal, but it's kind of secondary or kind of abstracted uh, because the ultimate goal is just I want to, for me at least, I want to build a cube where drafters are having a good time, where it's just <laughs> a fun experience. The ultimate goal is I want my friends to come over to my house. <laughs> sure, yeah, great. And one of the sort of layers of abstraction we can apply to that is we can say, well, what are the what are the things that make playing the game fun? Well, it's these like high decision moments. It's the the fact that there is this reward for highly strategic play. That's one thing that can be fun. But I think that if we just focus on that aspect and sort of replace the, the the entire goal with that we are definitely missing a lot of other aspects of the game yeah i just i hear people say things like oh you know oko doesn't belong in any cube that you know isn't doing the most degenerate things or you know things like that and it's like in the same way that people maybe just want a place to play dark ritual maybe people just want a place to play oko i mean that card's also banned everywhere so if you're going to be casting oko and that's something you want to do then it's entirely reasonable to say that one of the sacrifices is like, yeah, the Oko deck's going to have an outsized win percentage because this card is really good. And if we plugged it into a supercomputer, it might say this is beyond the limit of bannable. You should ban this card. But that's not what's important, right? What's important is the sort of whole experience you get playing the cube. And that exists in the context of your magic life more broadly, right? If this is a card you don't get to play with anywhere else, I think that's a lot of reasons people start making a cube in the first place. I know for me, a big driver of the design of my first cube, the first version of my cube, was wanting to play with cards that were banned in Commander, which was the format I was playing the most at the time. And I was like, I just want to cast Sylvan Primordial. Like, what is, what's so good about this card, actually? I want to feel it myself. And that's why I made did, that. Did you answer that question, by the way? I mean, I, I think it should be unbanned in Commander. I don't think it's actually that good, but that's a whole other topic of conversation. I was just struck by this sort of thing that I think we take for granted is so often assumed the goal or the stated goal of designing these novel environments. Hearing that as like one of many things you might value about playing Game of Magic was, was, was stark to me. Yeah, I mean, I sort of thinking through the episode, uh, it, it seemed like they were coming at this from, or, or they sort of laid out a lot of different reasons for people to want something in a particular metagame or in a particular format. And it's just interesting to hear that there are like different concrete goals that maybe we don't think about in these terms as often, uh, but really are there. So maybe for one player, their goal is they just want to play a certain kind of deck. And so yeah. a motivation for to, to ban or unban things uh, is just to make those certain kinds of decks viable in that environment. 
I think that Dark Ritual provides an identity, a gameplay experience that you don't get in most formats because Dark Ritual, there is in Vintage, there's Doomsday and some people play uh, uh, Tendril Storm variants, uh, but they're not very popular or not generally not good. But it's basically Doomsday if you want to be a Dark Ritual gamer in Vintage. Legacy has a lot of options. And if you're not ready to invest in reserve list cards or power, where are you going to cast a card like Dark Ritual? To that point, I feel like that is the major reason that I spent all that time working on the Degenerate Microcube. Because I wanted to play combo. And I was like, how can combo exist in my cube alongside the other kinds of archetypes that are dominant there? And after trying some things and thinking about it a whole lot and talking about it online with people, I was like, I don't think it can necessarily live there. If I want to be flashing in World Spine Worm, let's do that in a place designed for that. And so I, I totally get that, that that perspective that some players just want to do a particular kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the ultimate answer to most cube design problems is make a second cube. But I think that's also kind of given up a little bit. A little bit, Like, yeah. And maybe if I had tried a lot harder, I could actually fit some of these combo elements into the Bun Magic Cube alongside traditional aggro and mid-range and control, the big macro archetypes I care about supporting so much, but haven't done that work. So I'll just make another cube. But again, it's also nice just to do something very different. Like you could just make Bun Magic Cube and then Bun Magic Cube variation B that has a little bit of combo and like try and sort of map out all this different space. But it is really nice sometimes just to say, hey, let's actually create a very different experience uh, and start from a very different point. Yeah, this is kind of a like maybe parallel thought, but I wonder how much of combo players joy of playing combo is explicitly playing against non-combo decks if what they like is that sort of friction of you're trying to do one thing i'm trying to do a whole different thing and can i succeed at my parallel plan while preventing you from doing your thing enough to get to the point where i can actually win i don't know maybe playing combo against combo is a whole different thing that some people don't like even if they're combo players yeah, it definitely could be. A related thing they sort of touched on was that some players just want to keep playing the same deck. Players just don't want to see oh, the feels. format evolve. And I, I, or I guess we could also say the counterpoint to this is that some players do want to see formats evolve. So they want to see bands actually, you know, targeting things that have been dominant for over a long period of time or things like that. But both of these motivations make a lot of sense that people just either want to see things new or they want to be able to stick with what's, what's familiar to them. It does make sense. I understand it. I wish that is a thing I could shake free of the drafters of my queue because I do feel like oftentimes the meta lags behind the updates to the queue because you change a queue with different things in mind, but people that have played it before are like, oh, this is what I do in this cube. I always do this in this cube. And that thing has changed, right? Every time you add or remove cards from the cube, it's a different cube. Things are actually different, even if slightly. And I feel like it's a big hindrance to learning about how design decisions impact gameplay that you kind of have to drag people kicking and screaming uh, into doing the new thing sometimes because they're so comfortable doing the thing they know. Well, but is that just sort of players maybe not quite optimizing it yet, even though they would like to, but they're just sticking with what's familiar? Or do you think that uh, players would actually you know, be upset if you say, well, I'm going to nerf this theme a little bit because it's a little bit too dominant and players would say, well, that's my favorite kind of deck. Why are you doing that? I think it's a little bit of both. I think Parker would be genuinely be mad if I took that Kavu, if I took Territorial Kavu out of my cube. That Kavu. <laughs> but yeah, I think oftentimes it's just, we've talked about this before, how if you're looking at a pack, there's such a, a blurry line between like forcing something or, you know, having a bias and just trying to draft what you believe to be correctly, right? Like your bias tells you this is the better card in the pack, right? So a lot of times trying to break out of those heuristics and break out of those ruts is 
taking what your brain is telling you is like actively the not the best pick because you're like, well, I always draft this deck uh, and maybe I've even been struggling lately. Maybe I've been, you know, one twoing and 0 with this deck for the past couple drafts. But if you haven't had that sort of change in your mind where you've started to evaluate cards differently, you're still going to look at that pack and say, give me that opt because that's what I know and I think it's better than a Seekers Chariot or whatever. Yeah, it is interesting just to, to digress a little bit, but thinking about what does percentage of a deck, uh, how, how do you even structure the, the thought, the the win percentage of a particular card, how often does it appear in a deck that is winning, how much does that correlate with it actually being an overpowered card, or it, maybe it does sometimes, but just our perception is very different, so thinking specifically about Opt, I feel like in a lot of environments where blue is just a powerful card, just a lot of cubes, powerful color in, in that cube, Opt is just going to be one of the cards that is most desired, or, you know, Brainstorm is going to be extremely desired by those kinds of decks, so they're going to have extremely high win percentages, even though those aren't going to be the cards that feel like this is the the power outlier that's really uh, shaping this environment. Yeah, or maybe good... you disagree, because people do know that Brainstorm is powerful. I think Brainstorm is powerful and first pickable in my environment. I don't want to be first picking Opt to the Button Magic Cube. That's why I mentioned it as an example. It's kind of one of the lower tier. It's like in the Serum Visions tier of, uh, of Cantrip, where it's like, yeah, I, I want it in the deck, but I don't use that to get me into the deck normally. I think it's a good opportunity to refer to Jet's article from the early days of Lucky Paper, the first article ever published on Lucky Paper, which was uh, Jet's article about trying to analyze your cube drafts with data. And this article is really thorough, and I think it explains very clearly and mathematically why you can't use measured performance of cards with quantitative analysis to make assessments about power level in your own cube drafts. But it also talks about how, yeah, if you look at the win percentage of cards, all it right, tells you is yeah. what decks are good. It doesn't tell you what cards are actually good because you have a, could have a great card in a deck that is not that successful. You could argue maybe that's not even a great card anymore. Maybe you know, maybe that's what you're saying. Maybe the best pick is Serum Visions if you know that the blue-red deck is the 70% win rate deck in the cube and the you know S-plus rares in the other decks are just not good because cause they have a lower win rate. But... I think it really does come down to so many more factors than just, oh, a good card in deck means deck win more. It's uh, There's too many things at play there. Right, definitely. I think another sort of, you know, again, I'm just, I just tried to sort of think through what are the motivations for why are we going to ban stuff in a format? And another one they, they really highlighted was how particular cards shape the overall texture and play patterns and feel of a particular format. And this seemed to be one of the ones that seemed really important, but also much more difficult to capture, and kind of conflicts with a lot of these other ideas of, you know, cards should be balanced, and uh, we shouldn't have overpowered dominant effects, because sometimes those powerful dominant things, like you're saying, are the thing that defines, in a, in a positive way, what the environment is all about, or what the, the format is all about. This is where we get to the Dark Ritual conversation, right? So in the ban announcement video, Gavin mentioned that Dark Ritual is on on watch, it's on notice, because it is so often part of these broken decks, right? The most broken initiative deck, apparently, was using Dark Ritual on turn two to ramp into an initiative creature, and that speed bump was what was making the deck too powerful in their assessment. A lot of these magic purist people would probably rightfully argue that, hey, the problem is clearly Dark Ritual, right? It's this broken enabler that if it's initiative creatures today, when the next set comes out, it'll be some other three or four drop that Dark Ritual is ramping you into that is just too powerful. Right, and, and I think specifically with these initiative creatures, the, the issue with that mechanic is it snowballs really quickly. Once you're ahead, it's just going to keep generating resources for you, so if you can power it out, even it's at worth card disadvantage... Going, yeah, it's worth going way down right. on cards to rush it out. Uh, which, yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It's like, that is... 
sort of a synergistic thing. Uh, it's interesting to hear the Dark Ritual is not just a thing you put in every deck because you can't necessarily afford that tempo or that, that card value loss in favor of that tempo. But is there going to be another thing next year that's going to be printed that does make that trade-off? Probably. I feel like especially as we've seen card design sort of trend towards more and more drawing of cards and easier two for ones i feel like uh i think that's a thing most people would agree with i i could see that happening i think it's mostly going to happen constantly. in situations like the monarch and initiative where it's a thing designed for multiplayer that right, yeah. happens to be broken in one-on-one magic because like you would never see the kind of rate on what the initiative strictly does on these commons in any one-on-one intended set because it just does weird stuff it's too much for a common to do, right? I think that's the most likely source of future bans. It's going to continue to be these multiplayer products that are not really designed with pauper constructed in mind most of the time. Which is another thing they sort of touched on was that I think for a lot of players that have been in the game for a while, a lot of these new mechanics just feel, they're just less, uh, I guess... The initiative sucks. You can say it. it sucks. <laughs> no, but I, I, they, you they have less attachment to these. It's like, oh, for oh sure. I've been playing Magic for a long time. I Dark Ritual is a known quantity. I know what it does and how to play with it. And then here's this new thing that feels maybe intrusive is the right word. It's it's here's this new thing that maybe even wasn't really designed with this format in mind. And I feel like that's another sort of interesting motivation you can have is favor older cards over newer or favor classic iconic cards over new novel designs. Uh, and again, I, I think there is some legitimacy. Uh, on one hand, maybe it'll be more fun overall if we just favor trying to support a new and more diverse set of mechanics. But I also see the value of trying to preserve sort of an existing theme and and nostalgia about a format. Yeah, I mean, Magic is a game that is changing all the time. It's a different game when a new set comes out. It's got the same core mechanics, but it's a different game, right? It's it's like you bought a new board game and it plays differently every time there's a different format or a different set is, is released. And that game changes over time. And it's entirely possible you have people that just liked the old game Magic used to be and they don't want like the new game Magic is now. And those people can stop playing, obviously, right? That just, well, that they should just start playing Cube, which is the, the real of answer course. to everything. Of course, you just start playing Cube. you disagree with about Magic. <laughs> it, is, it is the one answer to all questions of the universe. Well, at least in the multiverse. It's not regarded as picky or like too preferential to like be a combo player, but combo doesn't exist in every format of Magic. And I would argue that combo is a thing that Magic has gotten further and further from as time has gone on. I think the iconic combos and two card combos that win the game, even if they're expensive and convoluted, we don't see those much that much these days because it's just not the direction that the game has been going in. So it's like if you're a combo player, you are playing Popper or Legacy because there's not really combo in any other format in the same way that you can play Doomsday combo or whatever in uh, in Legacy. All, all by means of saying that how relevant is the idea that Dark Ritual is iconic to this format and that should be defended because there's a place for players to cast this card that they love that is actually affordable, right? Legacy and Vintage being pretty inaccessible, almost even on Magic Online. But that's kind of tangential to the actual cube discussion. What's interesting to me is this idea of getting to decide what the defining cards of your format are. And we've talked about that before. I think that's kind of known territory. Like you are deciding what cards you want to play with most in your cube. The thing that really struck me here was when they talked about all the different potential counterplay to the initiative and how oftentimes the nature of the counterplay is the thing that determines whether or not a power outlier card is determined to be toxic and detrimental to the environment or just the new good thing to be doing, right? 
I definitely can see in a lot of contexts if there is a particular strategy that is dominant and requires a very narrow kind of counterplay that it's like, okay, everybody has to have this, you know, ley line of the void in their sideboard and it's just right. like, this is the game now. Multi uh, or foil. The initiative mechanic is based on attacking and dealing combat damage to your opponent and doing that with creatures. So it feels like there could be such a diverse range of counterplay from, you know, removal or bigger creatures or more kinds of evasion that it does seem, and they mentioned this as well, that maybe there just wasn't enough time for the a game to evolve because there is so much potential counterplay that's where i start thinking that yeah maybe they should have waited a little bit but well I, again i don't really care that much about the pauper bands this is that's a jumping no, off point that's fine what i care about is like you know we've talked about before how i have no problem with there being power outliers at really low mana values like ragavan is fine by me is it a power outlier in my cube probably but guess what my cube is a place where i get to play ragavan which is a card i think is cool and i want to play with but more importantly the answers to Ragavan are many numbered. There's all kinds of ways you can beat Ragavan. It's not one specific narrow thing. And importantly, the ways to beat Ragavan are not play patterns I want to discourage, right? They're just other decks that are viable that I want to encourage and allow to flourish. If anything, I want to encourage players to have more cheap removal in their decks, to have more turn one and turn two plays that can actually affect the board and attack and block. And so if anything, the sort of push that Ragavan puts on my environment, the pressure puts on my environment, is pushing people closer to the kinds of games that I'm trying to capture, even though if you, again, time-traveling supercomputered it, they'd be like, Ragavan's too good, you should cut it on balance reasons. It's actually kind of having this positive impact on the environment, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I think that that sort of metagame experience and what how an individual card pushes people to play against it or just be prepared for it, I think that's super important to cube design and something that maybe we don't talk about as much because it's easier to talk about what your deck is doing and, and what is the best thing to draft in this environment. But that whole interplay is where things get really interesting. And I think the conversation they had around Oko here was interesting, right? Because Oko is banned in Legacy. I think most people agree that it was called for and a reasonable ban. And they talked a little bit about the Oko days of Legacy, which, again, we don't play Legacy. I've watched a couple streams. I don't really know what it was like. But on paper, Oko has plenty of answers, right? You can just abrupt a kit. That's even uncounterable. You can counter it with Pyroblaster, Spell Pierce. It's a three-mana card that doesn't immediately say you win the game. Legacy is a pretty cutthroat environment. Like, why should this card be overpowered? And the answer was just that, actually, that suite of answers is kind of narrow. And there's lots of strategies in Legacy, lots of decks in Legacy, that don't have one of those answers. And so, do they just not get to play Magic anymore? Um, when Oko took over Legacy, it wasn't just, like, archetypes that died. It was, like, macro archetypes that died. So it was very hard to play a prison deck. It was very hard to play any sort of stacks deck. It was hard to play a creature-based control deck like Death and Taxes. So most of the spectrum of decks that I played, and like the entire spectrum, was just not competitive for six months or, or whatever it was. And I have a feeling that the initiative might have outclassed ranges of popper decks rather than just invalidating a single player's I person. had that exact idea I have not. in my head. Okay. Uh, I was also thinking of Oko as something that, you know, abrupt decay it. What's the problem? It's a three-mana spell that doesn't win the game on the spot. Play Pyroblast. Play uh, Spell Pierce. Play your own Okos. Get into a, like, high skill. How many elks do I make? How food, like, should I elk their thing that gives them one more elk than I have but takes their important permanent out of the play? Oko mirrors were extremely high skill and rewarded good play. But, like Phil said, what if your deck's not red for Pyroblast? What if your deck's not green-black for 
Abrupt decay. Uh, what if you're mono white? What if you're death and taxes? And so I almost wonder if when you're looking at power outliers in your cube, like a Ragavan or an Uro in my cube or Lely, I know that you particularly <laughs> think Lely is overpowered in my cube. I don't know if it's overpowered in your cube, but it just it just hurts my heart when it's just like, oh, I, I, I missed my chance. I can't I can't lightning bolt that this turn and then it's going to, uh, you know, just gets out of hand. The question I think that maybe is worth asking as a cube designer is what do the decks that beat this card look like? Because... You can take any card in Magic's history and concoct ways to beat it, right? There's always going to be some answer to a card. The question is, is that answer a thing you want to be encouraging people to play? That's given me a new perspective on the cards that I'm okay being power outliers in my cube, right? Some of them I knew was just like, these are cards I want to play with, right? Even if you tell me they're too good or whatever, it's just a card I want to cast. And I don't get to cast it anywhere else, so I'm going to cast it here. But also, I think the cards that do have answers that lots of decks have access to, that are contributing to the play patterns I want to encourage, those are the kinds of power outliers that I'm more okay with. Yeah, I mean, would it be fair to say that just one of your goals of the types of gameplay you're interested in is highly interactive? So having potent threats that are easy to interact with is a very good way to push that. And, you know, if we graphed the number of Planeswalkers in my cube over time, for the first few years it was none, because I was like, boo, new card type, bleh, I don't want that, I just want to play with old cards that I remember when I was 10. And then I added exactly one Planeswalker to every color. And I was like, okay, every color can have one as a treat. I just added one to each color. And I actually really like the play patterns of them for all the reasons we talked about on, on the podcast before. I think it's great that you have this modality. You get additional choices. It does lead to skill testing games to have Planeswalkers. And so I kind of leaned really hard into it. And these days I'm down to just 15 Planeswalkers, which maybe sounds like a lot depending on the kind of environment you're curating yourself. It might still seem like a lot at 360. But I'm actually looking to cut a couple more of these because even though I don't think any of the Planeswalkers in my cube right now are anywhere near close to power outliers, maybe Ren and Six is the closest. Ren and Six is really good, but not quite as good as it is in Constructed. They do just tend to lead to the kind of games that I'm no longer as interested in. I mean, yes, they're skill testing uh, in the same way that the Oko Mirror was skill testing, but it's oftentimes slow and kind of uh, uninspired, I guess, for the kinds of gameplay I want. So I've cut weaker planeswalkers just because i'm like eh, i don't like you're taking up a slot in the cube and you're not leading to the kinds of games that i want and you're not like a good reason to be playing this color you're just kind of like a card people get because it's a middle of the pack planeswalker so it's like i'm making all these cuts because of the kind of games they lead to not because of the power level obviously it's interesting thinking about the comparison between cube and constructed formats it's almost like in constructed formats bands are often viewed as like fixing a mistake it's like something that they want to do very very sparingly because you know they want you to have more options of more different cards to play with obviously and it's there's there's a lot of reasons to be i think it's mostly that they just it, you have people that get mad because they bought cards that now they can't yeah, play for with, sure right? there's, there's a whole sense. bunch of reasons but in cube it's kind of just like building your own little environment you're usually drafting not playing constructed but it's constantly like you have an cards. extreme 24/7. liberal use of the the ban hammer and can really just use that that like restriction of what cards are going to be seen in your environment to create exactly the kind of gameplay you're looking for yeah you get to like speed run all the different versions of modern or whatever drafted mind you but yeah you get to speed run all the different versions of your cube every time you make a change and say actually this card needs to go and like we've said cutting from the top i think is one of the best ways to actually enact change in your cube right if you do have people falling into these ruts where they're like stuck in these decks that they always draft Take their best pieces away, right? Don't cut cards from the bottom and say, like, all right, well, get rid of some of the worst cards for that deck and instead commit it to another color. Get rid of their best stuff just to see what happens, right, to shake things up. 
or, you know, I've found it's helped a lot to cut some of the cards that are kind of the, we talk about the way you get into a deck and like, oh, here's this mayhem devil that you see. And it's like, okay, well now this is open. I'm definitely going to get into black red. I think just cutting some of those entry points is a great way to see a particular deck less. Cast is so much more fun to play with and against than mayhem devil. Maybe, I mean, maybe we just go uh, add the rare module to the regular cube and bring cast back. Let's make it a little bigger. Just add cast, don't cut anything. That's a little bigger. Don't do it before KubeCon. No. The problem is, uh, I don't want to make it too much bigger. I, I want to. I want it to be small enough that I can shuffle four piles of it. And if I go much bigger than around four sixty, I'm gonna have. Uh, I'm gonna have to get bigger hands. What an interesting limitation. This is like you know where we get old measurements from. <laughs> like, why is the cube four hundred and ten cards? Well, that's the size of a man's foot. So that's just why we call it that. You know what they say about big cubes? Big hands. I've got the degenerate microcube over here. Are you trying to say something? Got tiny. <laughs> so we've talked about the idea that a meta is a real thing in a cube environment. And you might not think it is because it's not a constructed format. You don't show up with your deck predetermined. And there's not a bunch of content creators out there writing articles about your specific cube. But the conversations you have around the draft table, the the things people see in the packs, they help establish a real meta of a cube that I think has a big impact on how cards actually perform. Yeah, I mean, we see this obviously in a, in a small way, just that like, you know, a card will not be played for a long time, then it gets proven. Somebody drafts it and it does very well, and then other people will now change the way that they approach that particular card. We also see it in this sort of more extreme level, uh, especially in the Turbo Cube, which I know that's an extreme and weird environment, but it is really interesting to see how differently people will talk about cards depending on who's at the table. If, if we're sitting down and half the table has not drafted the cube before, you, you will think about cards very differently than if it's, you know, here's the cutthroat spikes that I need to now have counterplay against it because I know mm-hmm. that they're going to go for these particular strategies. Yeah. How long do you think you should allow a meta to shake out in any metric, be it number of drafts, be it number of weeks, amount of discussion with your playgroup? Like if you think something works, but people have decided they're not going to play it or whatever... How long do you let the meta try and shake out as a cube designer? You mean sort of rather than saying, oh, this particular card theme deck is a little bit overpowered and it's causing unfun play experiences. No, no, no. I mean the other side. Like, So let's just say that uh, you know we've got a deck that you think is well-supported. People don't draft it. So sure. on paper, it's a bad deck. And then it's this like repeating cycle where no one drafts it, so everyone says, well... I mean, Mono Black in my cube was like this for a long time. I think the Mono Black aggro deck in my cube was perfectly fine, perfectly viable for a long time. Nobody wanted to play it, right? Uh, and even I didn't really want to play it that much. And so it was this situation where no one was drafting it. Everyone was getting last pick black one drops that have two power. And the sort of consensus was just that was obviously it's a bad deck. Like, I didn't like this card when it was in the pack, and I got it back last pick. So obviously I was right, right? If, if it was a good card, someone would have taken it. And that just sort of reinforces itself over and over again. And so I just had to eventually cut that, right? I, I eventually gave up on the idea of the meta evolving in my cube to include this deck that people are otherwise ignoring. So I would say that, like we've said already, you're not going to have a real data that's meaningful. So really the only metric is just, are people playing fun? And does making the change increase the fun? And to that end, I think it's less about necessarily, you know, what the time-traveling supercomputer would would do and how you can prove your friends that they're wrong and they should be drafting this deck, and more just about what are those experiences and conversations that are happening. I think that changes a lot depending on how visible the particular thing in question is. So with the mono black deck, I think it's really key that you're saying it was visible. People were seeing I'm getting this black two yeah, one last just, pick again and again. Yes, exactly. It felt like a negative. There are definitely cards that have been in my cube that get played very little that I think should be played more, but they just it, it is, I don't think it's negatively impacting the experience if people aren't just 
paying that much attention to it, as opposed to something like Puppet Conjurer, which was it was became made, a meme. It was became a meme. It was made fun of a lot, and so I think that was more negatively impacting the, the experience. When uh, although people enjoyed having a laugh at uh, my expense, but it was also like, oh, I'm getting this last pick rather than something that could have been on my colors. So it, it was negatively impacting it in that way. So yeah, I think it in a cube that is drafted with a local play group of some you know not tremendous size. It really just comes down to the the fun experiences more more than anything else. And I said this episode wasn't going to be practical and we're going to help people at all. But I, what I took away from this conversation and thinking about it over the past few days is this idea again that the things that are good enough to be power outliers that establish a format that establish your cube that are the reason that your cube exists. For me, I think a big factor in what makes those things good but not so good that it becomes degenerate is what that counterplay looks like and how you actually beat that card. If you got a card that can only be beat in some really narrow or even if it's not narrow, can only be beat in a way that is not the kind of deck you want to support or play, right? Like you could be a player that just doesn't love aggro, right? Maybe aggro is just not your thing. And, you know, obviously there's going to be a fastest deck in your environment, but maybe it's still a really slow deck. Maybe your cube is mostly mid-range mirrors or whatever. You know, if that if that's the case, then, uh, you know, a card that is only answered by having a by just getting under it, right, is uh, is probably a big problem, right? Like, I think Uro is okay in my environment because one of the best ways to beat it is just to get under it because it does cost three mana and do nothing except for... Three mana, do nothing. Okay. It does very okay. little for three mana. You would not play the front side of Uro as a card in my cube. Explore with three life is, uh, is not very good. So it takes a lot of work before you actually get the thing that Uro is in the cube for, right? Get that thing that makes Uro a problem. So one of the best ways to beat it in my cube is just to kill your opponent before they get to do that, right? And that is the kind of answer that I want to be supported. But if you don't like those kinds of aggressive strategies, then maybe a card like Uro is a bridge too far in your environment because you don't want people to go faster than can beat Uro. So how else are you supposed to beat Uro? Or maybe you have to include Grave Hate in your environment and make that a like core pillar of what your environment is about because that's going to be the way that you want this card to be answered instead. So maybe we did help people, hopefully. In terms of how they think about what the power outliers in their environment are and whether or not they're okay with them being the power outliers. Yeah, I think that there's a really nice sort of idea in there of just like, you're going to have some power outliers, use them to create its identity. Uh, and think about what are the things that you want to be those power outliers that are going to make it feel like your cube. Uh, I think especially with designs that are less focused on, you know, I'm the horror themed cube, or this is the artifact cube, that that already has a really strong identity. If you're going a little bit more off the rails and just sort of building a cube from your collection or with the cards that you enjoy, another way to give it an identity is through having some carefully placed power outliers. All right. That's it for this episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Hopefully you enjoyed the return to form of talking about deep theory things. And uh, big thanks to all the guys from the Eternal Glory for letting us use some clips in this show. Much appreciated. The music for this show is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show is produced by thinking really hard about magic cards and been speaking into microphones about it. Thanks for talking about magic with me, Anthony. Thanks for talking about magic with me. 